five in the eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new? Welcome. It's Friday on Colourful Radio, and that means it's five in the eye day. But perhaps five in the eye as you never heard it before, because for one week only, we're abandoning our familiar five-story structure and focusing on just three topics. Big stories from Africa that are perhaps not getting the attention in the UK media they deserve. I'm Phil Woodford in London, very much looking forward to episode 0413. And this is me, Mike Lohajura, joining Phil via Zoom this week and revealing that we're, we're, we're revealing that we thought this was very a very special show, required a very special guest. He's an expert on Africa and economic development at the University of London. It's Dr. Mark Simpson. Hello there, Mark, and thanks so much for joining us here on Five in the Eye. Five in the Eye. Thanks, Michael. Um... Hello, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here on Colourful Radio. Um, We're going to be looking at three big stories today, and I'll do my best to shed some light on on them. It was logical that we should move south across the continent, starting with Sudan, where a conflict is currently raging, and then stopping off at Uganda, which is under international scrutiny at the moment for its draconian new law on homosexuality. Finally, It's just the short step across to Rwanda. The country, British Home Secretary Suela Braverman recently claimed is one of the safest in the world to send desperate refugees to. So let's embark on our very special journey and kick off this week's Five in the Eye. Five in the Eye. Well, we're going to start um, this week by talking about the crisis in Sudan. And I think to a lot of listeners, Mark, this seemed to come out of the blue. We don't get a lot of coverage of the of the country in in the British media. Um, and the way it's been presented to us is there are two factions of the of the military. There's the kind of uh, the, the the main armed forces um, who seem to be pitched against um, what's known as the rapid support forces the rsf and there are two strong men in charge of each of these factions now my understanding is that these guys were were pals not too long ago and they were responsible collectively were they not for ousting the uh the the the, the former uh leader um the the, the former president al-bashir uh, back in 2019 and yet they seem to have fallen out and are now engaged in a struggle for power. Perhaps you could just give us a little bit more background on kind of what's led up to this. Right. Because the situation that we see in terms of humanitarian suffering uh, seems truly awful, and it's it's really exploded in a very short space of time. Right. Oh, thanks, Phil. Um, I think this is a, a even more topical than 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 normally would be the case because just a few hours ago um, the army representatives uh, withdrew from uh, the mediation talks which are being held in Saudi Arabia under the auspices of um, the Saudis and the Americans. Um, I think it's important just very briefly to to point out that um, the role of the military in, in Sudanese politics has been very prominent ever since independence. Um, Since 1956, there have been six or seven successful military coups and countless others. Um, The 
the armed forces have come to constitute a state within a state, if you like. They have their own uh, business interests. Um, their budget is never in the public domain. Um, you have often coups within coups, which arguably is what is happening at the moment. Um, in terms of background, what happened was that there was a democratic transition after the overthrow of Omar al-Bashir by the military. Omar al-Bashir was himself a military officer who came to power through a military coup. And you had popular demonstrations calling for Bashir's removal and the military stepped in to take control of that process. Um, a transitional arrangement was put in place, um, led by the military, which was strongly contested by the civilian groupings who did not want a military-led transition to civilian rule. Um, and eventually, this transitional arrangement, which brought together civilian figures and military figures, uh, was overturned by another, yet another military coup um, in October 2021. Um, the civilians were arrested. The civilian prime minister went into hiding. Um, and then you had, it, they dissolved the transitional sovereign council. Um, and this has been followed by rising tensions between the army and uh, the rapid support forces led by a gentleman called Hemeti. Um, as the army tries to bring in these rapid support forces into its fold. Um, they were worked together closely for a while, but uh, each has their own distinct interests, their own revenue streams. Um, and the RSF decided that it did not want to be part of this new arrangement, and then you got the eruption of violence between the army and the RSF in April. And, and, and uh, there's, a, there's a relationship back, isn't there, to the, the conflict in Darfur, um, because um, the, the, the former president, al-Bashir, was implicated in serious crimes there. But also this RSF is linked to the ginger weed, which we, we we heard talked about at the time. Can you just explain that relationship a little bit? Yes. Um, it's worth pointing out that um, Omar al-Bashir is, is, is still to this day uh, the only sitting head of state indicted for by the International Criminal Court for uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide. Um, he nurtured uh, the Janjaweed uh, militia uh, to fight against a rebellion in Darfur. Um, they subsequently transmogrified into the RSF and became, if you like, Omar al-Bashir's um, Praetorian Guard. Um, Al-Bashir himself was careful to move his chess pieces around within the security forces so that none of them were dominant. Um, 
but also allowed them to to be self-sufficient in in terms of uh, revenue streams. They are allowed to build up their own business empires. And uh, that's one of the issues at stake here in the dispute between the RSF and uh, al-Bashir as general uh, uh, the general in charge of the uh, Sudanese army at the moment. This um, the business interests. I mean, we were talking before the show, um, and you you were telling me about the links that exist with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of people in the UK would be quite shocked to think that there was a connection, and the connection appears to be through this murky organisation, this mercenary group called Wagner which is operating in in areas like Bakhmut in, uh, in in Ukraine but also has a presence in Africa can you unpick that one for us because it seems crazy doesn't it that these yeah. conflicts are somehow interlinked yes um i think um the role of wagner has to be seen against the backdrop of a long standing uh, russian interest in securing a naval port on the Red Sea. Um, in fact, before his fall, al-Bashir had negotiated a preliminary arrangement with the Russians to allow them access to Port Sudan. What this would have meant with that was that they could project their power in the Red Sea and in turn link up with their naval base in Syria, in a place called Tartus, through the canal. And it's important, again, to re remember that one of the reasons why the Kremlin came in, came out and supported Assad was because they wanted to maintain that presence in on the Syrian coast. And this would have provided the Russian Navy with the power to interdict a vital Western artery by controlling, if you like, both ends of the uh, Suez Canal. Um, in terms of Wagner, um, Wagner has been granted mining rights in Sudan, gold mining rights. There are figures of up to $1.6 billion worth of gold smuggled out of Sudan, um, unaccounted for in the Sudanese treasury accounts. Um, Wagner is known to have a gold processing facility uh, north of Khartoum. It takes the gold from artisanal miners. They get shipped to the UAE and that revenue is probably what is financing its own operations in the Ukraine. Absolutely extraordinary connections that, that, you're, that you're you're painting for us here, Mark. And I mean, it shows a really, really complex web. I mean, if coming back to the the two main factions that are fighting at the moment, um, if one of them were to prevail in the conflict, whether help from outside or through their own initiative, 
what would it actually mean for the people of Sudan? I mean, do do either of these leaders have any particular ideology or vision that would take Sudan in one direction or another? Or is it just a battle between two kind of power-hungry warlords yeah. with their own military capabilities? I think w- where they share common interests, Phil, is in avoiding at all costs accountability to a civilian government for past malfeasance, including in places like Sudan, and in terms of what they are doing now to the Sudanese people, which is holding millions in Khartoum and Omdurman hostage without water, electricity, medical facilities, while they battle it out to see who's going to come out as top dog. Um, This is going to be one of the challenges going forward. As far as I see it, there are two main issues that are going to come out of any sort of ceasefire. Firstly, how do you return to the aborted transition to civilian rule? What's the detailed roadmap for that? And are there going to be, as opposed to the past, international guarantees and guarantors that are going to ensure compliance with the detailed roadmap? Well, I mean, I suppose you know, this this may be this may be where we're going to have to leave it because we do need to m- move on. But it, just as final final question to you, Mark, you know, who is the power that could broker some kind of deal and make it stick? I mean, <clears throat> we we've seen that the 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 Gulf powers have an interest, and they they're trying to uh, they're trying to. Um, make uh, some kind of compromise but that seems to be on the rocks right. uh, clearly um the the traditional western powers have interests um russia has interests but china as well uh, are they a player in this um they, they they're a minor player um i think one of the things that's happening within within diplomatic circles is the realization how little leverage external players have over what is happening. Um, Egypt, possibly, which has always been the kind of big brother next door to Sudan, um, close relations with the the Sudanese Defence Force, uh, could play a restraining role there. But just to pick up again, very briefly on this detailed roadmap, the, the fly in the ointment is going to be getting both sides to agree to take part in a robust security sector reform process, which is it will involve their disarmament, demobilization, reintegration, their willingness to be subject to civilian control by a civilian executive, parliamentary scrutiny of their budgets, their sources of revenue, and it sounds as if we're a rather long way away from that rise yeah. at the moment, Mark. I have to say yeah. Everything you've told us. Well, absolutely fascinating to pick your brains on that topic. But we're going to move on to um, another uh, important and topical issue in Africa. Michael's going to lead off on this. We're going to go to Uganda. Five in the eye.
It's a story that's almost come from nowhere, but you can put it in perspective, Mark, hopefully. It's, it's what's happening in Uganda is just past the most draconian, most draconian in the world, laws on homosexuality. You can be jailed for life for being homosexual and, under some circumstances, the death penalty. Now, this is extraordinary. Right. But then when, when, you, when you look around Africa, it's not it's not uncommon for them to be right. African countries to be, to be against homosexuality. What, what, what I'd like to understand, Mark, is why now? What's right. changed? What's changed in the government? Is, is this, is, is this a, a performative thing? Or is this is the political power behind this? Do the people want this? Right. Um, very good question, uh, Michael. I had me stumped. Uh, it also came out of the blue. Um, I thought this was an issue that had been put to rest because way back in 2014, a not dissimilar law, a not dissimilar bill was passed by parliament, enacted, and then challenged and overturned in the constitutional court. So this is nearly eight years ago. Now this has been revised in, in an even more radical, obscene form. And as you rightly point out, there, there, there are um, provisions for extended sentences, I think 20 years for something subject to interpretation by prosecutors, namely promoting, quote unquote, homosexuality and that and that is is particularly pernicious because it might be interpreted as including any advocacy on the rights of uganda's lgbtq community um there's also provision um for i think it's seven year jail terms for those found to knowingly allow their premises to be used for homosexual activities um where this has come from is, is really baffling to me. Um, every single ruling party MP, save one very brave gentleman who has stood out against it, uh, voted in favor of the bill. Um, I'm not sure that Museveni needed to, at this moment in time, uh, stiffen the sinews of the ranks and ensure unity around the issue. Um, what, what it has triggered possibly to his advantage is a strong domestic, amongst the political elite, domestic anti-Western rhetoric. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly messed up the West. You yes. know, Britain came up with some weasel words. What was it? They, they were appalled. This is an attack on democracy and human rights. And it says all the right things. And then America says equally, or Joe Biden says equally the same thing, said it's shameful. But then, at the same time, you have to think, well, these people don't, don't uh, donate money to um, uh, to Uganda. The aid, the aid suppliers, literally aid. They do work yes. for, for AIDS. So it's it's in the country's good to try and help them. But then the the, the, the Ugandans are saying, uh-uh, we're not interested. If you want to take the money away, do so. And yeah. just, you know, my frustration with this, this Mark, is this old, you know, the, the China-Russia thing. You don't get any lectures on morals and governance right. from them. They just get on with it. They leave you. What was it, the glib right. thing? In America, you get a lecture. From China, you get an airport. Right. So True. There's, True. There's a, I have a frustration here. Are, are they really saying, enough of the West? We are our own people now. We don't need your money. Yeah. 
I mean, they're, they're, as I said, it, it has triggered, and this may be to Museveni's advantage, strong anti-Western, anti-neocolonial rhetoric amongst his rank and file. At the same time, domestic human rights advocates are pointing out the obvious, which is that this law violates Uganda's own constitution. A number of other key international instruments, such as the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and most importantly, which is ironic because Museveni is a strong Pan-Africanist, the continent's own African Charter on Human and People's Rights, which includes commitments to dignity and non-discrimination. So this will be challenged, and I think with a good chance of being successful in Uganda's own constitutional court. Um, so much. No, go ahead, Michael. Go ahead. I, I was, I was going to say, what I was fascinated about reading and uh, looking at this, that the speaker of the of the Ugandan government, the, the Ugandan is is fully regaled like a, an English speaker, an English speaker in the, in the House of Parliament with the wig on, and the, correct. Yet yeah, that some sense of this, this it's almost like British, like a British court. Uh, yes. sense of all the things that that, that that come from that, the constitution. Right. Constitutional thoughts that come from that. Well, maybe, well, maybe right. the courts are the key here, because the courts did throw this out before. Right. So maybe to your point, because it's not it's it's not constitutional, that Correct. ain't gonna work. Yeah, I mean, one needs to bet on on the quality of of the Ugandan bench and their independence from the executive power. That's where it's going to lie, and it was on the. That's what allowed the 2014 Act to be thrown out. Mm. Um, and so one can only hope that the legal team of the human rights activists and the LGBT community activists are good and that the judiciary is independent of the executive and does not suffer undue pressure. Now, just a closing question about coming back to this subtext. What part do you think the American fundamentalists are playing in this? Because they're all over Africa, you know, and they're, they're, they're putting a lot of money into this, or they've got a lot of money. Right. Spreading the word of the Lord and redemption and Christianity and moral majority and all the things that, that that's driven them to be a power force in America. They're applying to, um, to, to, to Africa and to African Christians. And then when you link in the Israel thing, it all gets a bit heated. Do you yes, that, 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 they're 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 in a powerful force here. They're a relevant force. Yeah, yeah, no, undoubtedly, I have no doubt that uh, far right fundamentalist Christian groups from the U.S. are there in Uganda preaching a particular view, which leads Museveni amidst many other problems to decide that the priority is is to persecute those of a particular sexual orientation at this moment in time. Um, one thing I did pick up over the last 48 hours, which was interesting, was that one of the MPs who voted in favor of the bill offered to travel to the Middle East, which as we know, has very strong anti-homosexual legislation in place, in order to find funding 
to replace that from Western donors should the aid tap be turned off. Wow, alternatives, alternatives. So we have a very unholy alliance likely building up. Mm. Now, we, we live in very strange times in, in geopolitical terms, yes. in terms of who's doing what, yes. where, with who and why. And, and I'm sure we're going to come back to this. I want to move on to our final story this week, and it's about Rwanda. Five in the eye. I'd like to take, I get your view on the fact that, let's put let's put aside Cruella, Cruella, sorry, Suella, Suella Bradman's <laughs> um, um, policy for a moment. Let's just talk about Rwanda as a country. Now, Rwanda seems to be a, a country of great possibilities. That's on the surface. It is, I've seen the way it, it promotes itself internationally. Right. It's a young country, vibrant tourist tourism, beautiful country, right. an open country, safe. Right. But, you know, am I looking at rose-tinted glasses? Is the reality somewhat different on the ground? Are there issues? Are, are, it's not. It's not as beautiful as, as they as they are painted to be. Um, Kagami is extremely adept at promoting Uganda, um, not only through sponsoring <laughs> Arsenal, for example, inviting people to 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 come and see the gorillas, etc. And, and and it is beautiful. Just don't visit the prisons. Just don't go next door to the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo and look at the horrific population displacements that have taken place as a result of Rwanda's military intervention on a continual basis. So are you saying the, 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 the genocide is still, the Hutsu Tutsu thing is still continuing? What has happened is that Rwanda, for decades now, has intervened in the DRC for two primary reasons. One, it's concerned about a revival of Hutu power, because that's where the Hutus fled to. But it, And it has used indigenous Tutsis to fight against the central government in Kinshasa. Secondly, it has pillaged and plundered the natural resources of its neighboring country. And there is copious documentation on this produced by successive UN panel, panels of experts tracking natural and mineral resources from the DRC to the coffers of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which then get exported and generate critical revenue both for the ruling party, but also for the Rwandan military who have their own corporations involved in the mining of cadmium, lithium, timber, vital, critical resources, given the technology that we use nowadays, like iPhones, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, critical, critical. But, but I'm going to set my, I've got, I've, got to, I've got to stop you there. Rwanda's population, was it 10, 12, 13 million? DRC is a hundred million. Yeah, I can't. There's an imbalance there. You know, you're saying the Rwandans are holding the the, the DRC. What What you have to understand is that Rwanda has become an African Sparta. It is a highly militarized state. The Rwandan Patriotic Front equals the Rwandan Patriotic Army. 
Its current head of state, Kagami, was a military commander for many years. Everybody does military service. And in a way, like the Wagner Group, it offers its services outside its country. So, for example, if you cast your mind back to that uh, Islamic uprising in northern Mozambique, you may remember during the pandemic, there was an Al-Shabaab uprising in northern Mozambique. The Rwandans intervened, very easily crushed this nascent Islamic insurgency in the north of Mozambique. And then guess what? One finds out that the primary investor there is Total, the French company, which was about to exploit gas. This follows, this is then followed by a visit by Kagame to Paris, where he embraces Macron. They make their pieces and 500 million euros of development assistance is then given to Rwanda. So, so you, is Rwanda playing the game here? Because at the same time, it's, it's part of the Commonwealth, it wants to join in that kind of open institution, and, and yet it's taking money from the French. And it's, uh, I don't know, this is a bit of a revelation here. I wasn't, wasn't aware of that um, connection to the DRC. So right. does, does that mean if the military is as strong as you say it is, then you, Rwanda must be a safe country then? You know, in terms of for tourists to, to move around freely, you know, no El Shabazz or Boko Haram here. They, it's 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 very calm, peaceful. Absolutely, it's 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 as Braverman said, it's one of the safest countries in the world, depending who you are. And the problem is that there was a terrible experience for refugees in Rwanda in 2018. Eleven or twelve refugees who were protesting against their living conditions was shot dead by the police. This is copiously documented by Human Rights Watch and other respectable international NGOs for protesting against their living conditions. They were first tear gassed and then live ammunition was used. And then subsequently they were charged, some of those who survived were charged with bringing down the international image of Rwanda. And this is the country that Braverman insists illegal migrants should be sent to. Well, let me get this right. So if you fit in, if you accept the way that the, the, the state is as it is, and it seems to be quite peaceful, unfortunately, but the under, there's, there's a price you pay for that priest. There's a military strong arm ready to kind of put you in your place the moment you step out of place. Most definitely. Um, one of the ironic things was that just before Braverman made her statement in Kigali during her visit in March, the U.S. State Department issued its report on human rights practices in Rwanda for the year 2022. And it listed a whole series of problems, of issues, unlawful, arbitrary killings, the use of torture, um, life-threatening prison conditions, arbitrary detention, um, restrictions on free expression and the media, um, restrictions on political participation, 
uh, harassment of, of human rights organizations. And this is happening while Braverman is standing there on, on the lawn in Kigali saying, this is, this is the safest place in the world. That's a, that's a, you know that's extraordinary. You got that that, that background to that to that, that, that setting, and I'm sh- look. We're, we're going to finish here, Mark. But look, you've raised some real issues here. We haven't resolved anything interesting. We haven't <laughs> resolved it. You, you just put these things. You put these things up here in terms of what's happening in Sudan, the issues in Uganda. How's that going to resolve? Could the court sort this out? And here in uh, Rwanda, is it as safe for refugees as we say? So I'm going to ask you. I'm going to close here by saying, look, you've got to come back on the show and kind of, kind of, I don't know, say clean these things up, sort them out. But at least- <laughs> or, or, or maybe Something. even take us on a tour of some other African nations because uh, it's yeah. been so educational to them. Right. Absolutely. Five in the eye. Well, it's certainly been an, an, an enlightening and highly unusual edition of Five in the Eye. We, we didn't manage any quick stories, quirky stories this week, but hope you found our discussion on Sudan, Uganda, Rwanda as illuminating as we did. And thanks so much to Mark for joining us and sharing his extensive knowledge on episode 0413. If you want to get in touch with us over the weekend, over the week, over the weekend, over the weekend as well if you want, this weekend, please do visit our Facebook page. And, and for now, this is me, Michael O'Hijuri, saying, as always, if you have been, Thanks for listening. And uh, this is Mark Simpson, um, thanking both Phil and Michael for the invitation, saying goodbye and wishing you well for the week ahead. And until next time, I'm Phil Woodford, reminding you to keep an eye on the news as you never know what we'll be discussing on episode 0414 of Five in the Eye. Goodbye. Five in the Eye with Michael and Phil. It's news, but is it new?